Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 174. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 83 through 86 and follow with some thoughts about the sad arc of history. Although it's not obvious at the outset, Psalm 83 begins in a bad place. Danger, Will Robinson! Danger! No, Will Robinson! Danger! The poet pleads for help, quote, Do not be mute, and do not be quiet, God, for look, your enemies rage, and those who hate you lift their heads. Against your people they devise cunning counsel and conspire against your protected ones. The intervention is necessary and obvious, quote, Do unto them as to Midian, as to Sisera, as to Yavin at the brook of Kishon. They were destroyed at Endor, they turned into dung for the soil. Deal with their nobles as with Orev, and as with Ze'ev and Zevach and Salmunah, all their princes who said, We shall take hold for ourselves of all the meadows of God. O God, make them like the thistle down, like straw before the wind. Psalm 84 goes deep into longing for the house of God. Quote, My being longed, even languished, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing gladness to the living God. For the poet, this longing is almost erotic, a pilgrim's psalm taken to the next level. Psalm 85 looks back to the past, the glorious good old days when, quote, you favored, O Lord, your land, you restored the condition of Jacob, you forgave your people's crime, you covered all their offense, Selah, you laid aside all your wrath, you turned back from your blazing fury. The poet would like those days to return. There is a precedent, after all. Quote, kindness and truth have met, justice and peace have kissed. Truth from the earth will spring up as justice from the heavens looks down. Psalm 86 finds the poet asking God for assistance, but this time it's merited. Quote, incline your ear, O Lord, answer me, for lowly and needy am I. Guard my life, for I am faithful. Rescue your servant who trusts in you, you, my God. And why should God deliver? Quote, For you, O Master, are good and forgiving, abounding in kindness to all who call to you. Hearken, O Lord, to my prayer, and listen well to the sound of my pleas. An extra bonus in doing so, quote, All the nations you made will come and bow before you, Master, and will honor your name. And on that pious note, here endeth the lesson. I've heard it said many times that Jewish history can be summed up in a single glib line. They tried to kill us, they failed, let's eat. This take is accepted by many as fairly axiomatic. Just look at the headlines, they say. We're under attack, we're victims of hate crimes, Israel could be destroyed at any minute. But expanded out beyond the vicissitudes of the present moment, it's a particularly bleak view of history, typified by hatred, vilification, persecution, and a persistent, lingering fear that at any moment, you'll be annihilated. How can one feel secure in a worldview like that? In his 1928 essay entitled Ghetto and Emancipation, Shall We Revise the Traditional View, Sallow Barron argued against what he referred to in his later work as a lacrimose conception of Jewish history. 
His forebears in the Jewish Academy, men such as Heinrich Graetz and Leopold Zunz, overstated, he believed, the extent of Jewish suffering in the pre-modern world. Yes, the Jews faced many disadvantages during the medieval and early modern periods, but their status reflected that of a corporate community in a society of corporate communities. Every corporate community had its own advantages and disadvantages and privileges. Jews weren't unique. But what about antiquity? Was it good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? Academics are divided. And what about the 20th century or the 21st? Well, we have to wait for the Jewish story to end before deciding if it had a happy or sad ending. Or can we just all agree now that it's an ongoing tragedy? Is it good for the Jews is arguably the eternal question. Asked in every generation for at least the past century, but is this what the poet's asking in Psalm 83? Psalm 83 could be thinking good for the Jews in this specific moment in time, one of national emergency, when all the surrounding nations have come together in an alliance against the Jewish kingdom. But are we back to the old King David as poet framing? David as king never experienced a grand alliance against him. From the list of hostiles in verses 7 and 8, and the callback to the Song of Devorah in verse 10, could this psalm come from an early date? Close to or even within the period of the judges sometime before 1000 BCE? But there's mention of Assyria in verse 9. Could this push the date into the late 8th century? But would Assyria, the mighty, brutal empire, ally itself with these Pisher Transjordanian kingdoms? Hardly. Or because the ambiguity of yet familiarity with the crisis, could this psalm transcend all those moments and take its place as part of the Jewish national ethos we all know and feel in our bones? They tried to kill us. The poet says it much more eloquently, quote, For look, your enemies rage, and those who hate you lift their heads against your people. They devise cunning counsel and conspire against your protected ones. They have said, Come, let us obliterate them as a nation in the name of Israel, who will no longer be recalled, for they conspired with a single heart against you. They sealed a pact. At this point in the emergency, the ending is uncertain, so the poet asks for some divine intervention. We don't know yet if they failed. He wants God to make them fail. At this point in the axiom, I have to wonder what the poet thinks about that they tried to kill us part. No human life is free from peril, but is peril the natural state of affairs, is this the default position? Because one could justifiably wonder what kind of deity God is if, in God's world, God's people were in a perpetual state of threat and terror. God wouldn't be very much of a god to let that stand. If anything, the poet's worldview would support an opposite take on history. In history's natural state, God's love showers down upon God's people. Jews are triumphant in their land, but because of Jewish sin and sinning, God withdraws divine protection, giving space for enemies to rage and ruin. Think of the days and weeks after the Exodus. The mighty Egyptian monarch is humbled, his cavalry decimated, at the Reed Sea, no one would dare raise a finger against the Jews as they marched through the Sinai on their way to the land of Israel. The only hiccups along the way were self-inflicted. But you don't have to go that far back. Psalm 83 alludes to Edom, Moab, Ammon, Amalek, and the Philistines. They raged, but they were also ultimately defeated, and the natural order was restored. Or during the Davidic period of glorious monarchy, one simply has to have faith and trust the process. 
If the poet was being glib, he might have quipped, We sinned, they tried to kill us, God thwarted them, let's eat. It's not as quippy as the modern equivalent, but it's an accurate representation of the Tanakhic state of mind. But I imagine that really wouldn't play today. In a post-Shoah world with an independent and problematic Jewish state and a well-integrated yet divided community in the United States, could you imagine the kerfuffle if a prominent Jewish leader penned an op-ed in the New York Times stating that all Jews need to do to address the current emergency is to stop sinning and return to the righteous path and all their plans to kill us will be thwarted by God on behalf of God's people? We get variations of this periodically in the Israeli press when, after a tragedy of some kind, some obscure rabbi makes a statement about the cause being an unkosher mezuzah or driving on Shabbat or some other grievous sin against God. You're kidding. Which makes the lacrimose take on Jewish history all the more appealing. Like the Tanakhic take, it presents a coherent perspective on the present moment with deep historic resonance. It takes out the woo-woo magical thinking aspects that ring false in our late capitalist postmodern ears, but it still affirms the core of the Tanakhic premise. Jews are exceptional, and their fate is exceptional, which I guess every group thinks about itself, which makes this axiom prosaic rather than unique. Except perhaps for the eating part. Bear claws. Oh, and one more thing. How does the second statement connect with the first? I get that they tried to kill us part, but how come they failed? It's never explained. Did they overthink it? Were they unprepared? Did they forget to bring an extra pair of socks or batteries? We just assume that their failure is built in, or was built in, as if the trying guarantees it. But failure doesn't happen all by itself, and it isn't inevitable. Neither is them hating us. And if we took a moment and looked around, we might realize we have more to be happy about than sad. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Nachcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast at patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 175 when we continue in Psalms with chapters 87 through 90.